You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast. Later on in the show, you'll hear from Anne Lyons on her new report, Identity of a Nation, Protecting the Digital Evidence of Who We Are. Our roving reporter, Brendan Nicholson, interviewed Dr. Robert Glasser on climate change and security. But first up, Maddie and I sat down with two of ASPE's mentors from our Women in Defence and Security Network Speed Mentoring Night to find out their best career advice. So I'm sitting with Fiona and Danielle and Madeline uh, because last week Aspie went on tour to Sydney. We did. For a speed mentoring night run by our Women in Defence and Security Network. So Maddie, I'm just going to throw it to you very quickly. Speed mentoring, tell me all about it. What's the go? So this was an idea that you and I came up with together. Um, closely modelled on speed dating, but rather than sort of having the awkward chat with uh, a potential romantic partner. It was all about getting a group of amazing women in a room together, women who work broadly within defence and security, um, and then setting them up so that they can interact with participants to come in and sort of have quick sort of sound bites of mentoring from these women about their experiences working in the industry. And so we're sitting with two mentors from the evening, Fiona and Danielle from ASPE. Uh, I am, before I talk to you guys, I'm going to throw to Natasha Moore, who's a partner at KPMG, and they were uh, also our sponsor on the evening, and we collaborated on the event. And uh, Natasha just talked about her key takeaway um, was that she just felt that the future was bright, essentially. So we'll hear from Natasha. My key takeaway is that we're in good hands. There's a tremendous lot of capability. Uh, It was really interesting to hear everyone's perspective. Uh, the types of questions were around how do you make a career in defence and, and what do you need to do? And I guess one of the key lessons that we tried to share is uh, don't underestimate the transferable skills that you have. Don't think you need to go in knowing everything. So Fiona and Danielle, key takeaways for, for you. Danielle, I'll start with you. Sure. So um, I, you, you guys know I'm a massive fan of these events uh, and I attended the one uh, here in Canberra and moved some things around to go to Sydney because I think they're fantastic and if I was a government department or company I would be jumping at the chance frankly to partner with Aspie on this I think it's uh, they're phenomenal. Takeaways for me were uh, a few things one there was a really large Australian Navy contingent at the event which I wasn't expecting and was fascinating to sort of hear from a lot of those women about uh, the different challenges but opportunities uh, in the Navy when it comes to uh, thinking and talking about uh, gender diversity and women in leadership. Um, mm. I th- almost every woman I met from the Navy I found super impressive, so that made me feel really great <laughs> about the future of the Navy. <laughs> and the way these speed mentoring evenings work is really interesting in that you feel a bit, as a mentor, you feel a bit hopeless in the first one or two rounds, but then you get better and better and better. So I always feel sorry for the first group or two I'm involved in because it takes a while <laughs> to get your head Pink around it. You know, you have these five to seven minute blocks of time to answer questions and put out some like short sharp thoughts and the first couple it's a bit messy but then you get better and better and better and by the end it just like comes really naturally Mm -hmm. so they were my sort of takeaways yeah I well I agree with Danielle but I also agree agree with Natasha when she said the future is bright because that was my major takeaway was to be surrounded by all these motivated 
young women who really did have an interest in how they progress and how they're going to find their way in their careers and just how smart and impressive they were. Yeah. That was um, sort of restored my faith. Faith a little bit. <laughs> of um, women in leadership. So I think that was fantastic. I, I agree the first two, two or three tables, um, two rounds were a bit rusty, sort of got mm. introductions in and not much else. Mm. But it was like the groups could they sort of fine-tuned what they wanted as well because they almost I feel like they were taking in question uh, taking in turn to ask one sort of burning question yeah mm. so and we got towards the end we got some really quite challenging questions oh really any that stand out the probably the standout was asking thankfully it wasn't directed at me but it was <laughs> around sort of meritocracy um, versus gender equality and okay. how you address both things within an organization so the response came from Deborah Warren Smith who works with the Australian Army and she basically said that it wasn't an even playing field that we're starting from. So mm. that's why quotas and things like that can be really useful in evening up that playing field. Or stretch mm. targets. Mm. Yeah. Is the mm. sort of term. But, but that you don't do away with uh, meritocracy altogether. Mm. And another one of her key points was about finding a male champion within an organisation to help you along and I thought mm. that was fantastic advice. Mm. Mm. Yeah I think it, it came out in a few different conversations that you know your mentors don't always look exactly um, you know your typical mentor you might find you know the most senior women woman that you're working with um, but it might not be that person in your organization I think mentors come in you know very mm. different shapes and sizes and different backgrounds and yeah. everything like that but I know one of the bigger questions was how to approach mentors and I really liked the response from um, Stephanie Andel from the Australian Cyber Security Growth Network and Megan McKenzie from the University of Sydney um, both had some advice about approaching people um, and it's uh, most of the advice was was just be shameless, just go for it. Um, so we'll just hear from them now. Tell the person why you admire them without being, you know, over the top, but just say, I really appreciate this and I want to get better at it. And I, right now, I don't have this skill or, and, and be specific about what it is you think that they could um, provide. And 99% of the time, I've never had someone, I've shamelessly approached mentors and said, oh my gosh, how do you do that? I love your work. And people, we now laugh about it with some of my current mentors. They tell the story about how I would shamelessly kind of haunt them at the end of a conference or approach them Stop. and just say, hi, I emailed you a week ago. And that's, that's I think, just part of it. People really, it's, it's such a pleasure when someone asks me to mentor them now. So, um, Danielle and Fiona, how, how would you approach a mentor or advice for getting through that big first hurdle of, of you know, asking someone for help? The way I, I have male and female mentors, I think most of them don't know they're my mentors. <laughs> uh, I, I think a lot of them are former bosses. Uh, that I just really enjoyed working with that I like to touch base with. Mm. Um, but what I also have, and I think this is really important and undervalued, is I have a lot of um, men and women around my level in Canberra and Sydney and other places who I just use as a touchstone for advice because just because we might be around the same age or both, you know, all of us have the same level of experience broadly doesn't mean they don't have extra lessons learned and extra yeah. experiences that I might not have gone through Different perspectives. Before. Exactly. So I actually find touching base with, with a lot of people 
around the same level of my career to be almost as useful as mm. reaching up uh, into different senior ranks. Yeah, okay. I think it's quite a hard thing to approach different mentors. I just sort of see people in the industry that, that I like and if I see them in an event, uh, I try to sort of go chat with them, get a bit of an advice, try to go for coffee. But it is a difficult area. It's sort of strange and especially when you're thinking about senior people, they're just too busy, you know. Mm. And even if they want to give more time to more people, it's just not always possible. Fiona, for you, any advice? Well, I think most people in general are flattered if you ask for mm. their advice. So I think, like Danielle, it doesn't have to be a really formal thing, although I am actually involved in a formal mentor-mentee sort of program through um, the Australian Human Resources Institute, which is fabulous. Uh, but I think if you are able just to foster those relationships, the other important thing is networks. So things like uh, WDSN, but other mm. networks are really important to find people at your level, above mm. you, uh, that you can call on for advice. But in general, I think most people are really um, receptive to mm. the idea of being a mentor because it's quite flattering. Mm. Now, on the evening, the sessions were in six-minute blocks, which is not really a lot of time. Were there any questions that you didn't uh, get enough time to answer or any questions that you were really hoping you were asked and, and didn't? I'm yes, I, I actually thought that... I, and it's probably um, to do with my sort of personal circumstances, but that there might be more questions around balancing work and family, mm, um, okay. considering the audience. That didn't happen at all during the formal part of the night, but the informal sort of networking afterwards, I actually was approached about that several times. So I thought oh, that was quite interesting. I don't know if that's something people thought they couldn't bring up in the, mm. in the formal environment, but really I thought it was a bit of an elephant in the room mm. that nobody did ask those sorts of questions. It's almost an elephant in the room in a workplace setting anyway. You yeah. know, I think for a lot of women would probably see it as, as a high risk to you know broach that and ask for advice from you know their HR manager or, or something like that. But I mean, what, it, what is the advice that you would give? Well, I always say, I, I, I think it's important to establish yourself um, prior to having your family, if that's possible. Um, but I, now people change careers so often that that might not be a reality. The other thing um, I think is that the workplace has changed a lot and it is a lot more flexible and people are a lot more accommodating. So don't really be afraid to ask those mm. questions. And I guess the final piece of advice would be that I just don't think you can have everything all at the same time so sometimes something has to give you're either sort of achieving great things at work but dropping a few balls at home or the other way around and I would just say be kind to yourself and don't think that you have to have it all at exactly the same time. Mm. Danielle were any questions for you you didn't get the time to answer or you were hoping you would be asked? Not really but I noticed that one question that came up that's really hard to answer I find anyway is that there's a lot of women out there who want to crack into the vague foreign policy, national security, defence intelligence, whatever you want to call it, sector, mm. who are sort of on the periphery and are struggling to, to get into that sector. And that's a really hard question to answer because there is no traditional pathway yeah. for people. And I've noticed that's come up in a lot of these WDSN events. In fact, it comes up all the time. And I do struggle to answer that one because a lot of people, a lot of women especially, um, hold themselves, I think, to really unnecessarily high and tough standards and think that, you know, they should have got into a grad program or 
they should have entered into this sector when they were 23 years old and have worked their way up and it just doesn't work like that. And so my advice to people was there is no right path. Focus on the topics and the themes and the, t the type of work that might work for you. Think of it really broadly. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are still stuck in the mindset that this sector is diplomacy and that they have to get into the DFAT grad program. I just think so differently about it. Yeah. Um, DFAT is one of more than a dozen departments and agencies that works in this space uh, and it really depends on what you're interested in. You know, you have Home Affairs, you have all the intelligence agencies, uh, you obviously have a huge de defence department, you have the civilian and serving aspects to that. It is so broad. You have industry, you have civil society. It's sort of never ending. You have parliament, there's tons of advisor jobs always going on and off in parliament. So I would just think of it uh, as this big broad industry where it's not about grab programs. Uh, I never uh, applied for a grab program. It's not that I didn't want to, I just didn't think about it. Uh, and I got in through other pathways and just bounced around a bit. Mm. Uh, so I found a lot of women I thought were were way too hard on themselves and just have to, had to think of it as a bit of an industry that they might crack into in their 30s. You yeah. know, you don't have to start in this yeah, space from 22. Yeah, there was one woman at our table who had been basically an EA, I think, to parliamentarians for 20 years and she was now 50 and she'd gone back to university to study because this was sort of her her burning passion. I found her totally inspiring. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I remember her from the night. She was, yeah, really enthusiastic. Yeah. But that was sort of one of the things that in organising this event I really wanted to try and highlight was getting women from a variety of different industries to come in as mentors, just mm. to highlight what you were saying, Danielle, the fact that there isn't one way to get into this industry. It's not all about, you know, if you don't get into the DFAT or the Defence Graduate Program, it's not the be all and end all. There are so many different pathways or that you can do. What university degree you do. Exactly. Joanna, who was a mentee on my, uh, mentor, sorry, on my table, who works for the NBN in cybersecurity, her, she did ancient history as a degree at university. Mm. I did yeah. business. Which I, I find I, really useful, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think for me, so much of my broader life experience has formed, you know, my career path and career successes. It wasn't mm. my university degree necessarily, no. although that can be important. Mm. But for me, it was the extracurricular activities, how I got involved in the community. And there's all those skills there that are transferable to so many different jobs. Absolutely. Um, and often it's those mentors, either informal or, or formal mentors in an organisation you work with who end up shaping the direction mm. you take as well. Mm. Yep. Yeah, that's so true actually. When I think of, I've had different bosses who have encouraged me to apply for different jobs or accept different offers that I would never have thought about had I not been encouraged down those pathways. And for you as mentors on the evening, was there any advice that you ended up gaining from other mentors that you interacted with that you was that was maybe new to you? What did, yeah. Was there anything that you personally took away? Yes, I, as I mentioned before, um, I had a very senior woman from the Navy on my table and she was fantastic uh, and so impressive. And one bit of advice I had been given uh, was that I tend to follow good bosses mm. to organisations mm. and I really think that life is too short to invest in bad leadership and bad organisational cultures. And unfortunately in our sector there's plenty of that. Yeah, I'll leave an organisation if I uh, think uh, those things are occurring and I'll go and look for a place where 
uh, those things are not occurring. And so I talked about how I do follow around these bosses or an old boss will call me up and say, you should really do this. And, and she said, for your next job, it's time to stop following and to start leading. What and a great line. <laughs> right? should put that on a T-shirt, Danielle. <laughs> I'm going to get you a coffee mug. Yeah, yeah. She said, next time, don't follow a boss. Um, you know, start your own team and uh, you be the leader and you get people to follow you. Uh, and I do get people to follow me already a little bit. And I said, thank you. That's great advice. And I will think about that for my next job. Uh, but so I, th- I found that really useful. Yeah. Um, that was one of the things that, sorry, Tanya, that was one of the things that walking around the room on the night, I noticed, and also afterwards, people coming up to me, like, it wasn't just about the sort of the mentees getting advice from the mentors. It was like, you know, it was very much kind of like a two-way street, yeah. sort mm-hmm. of like the mentor, a few of the mentors came up at the end and were like, like you said before, Fiona, it was just like really inspiring to be in a room filled with sort of young women who were so passionate about wanting to work in this space that they kind of found that really sort of rejuvenating as well. Yeah, it was mm. really infectious sort of positivity. Yeah. It was. <laughs> yeah, it was lovely. One of the girls on my uh, table gave the mentees advice that I thought was excellent and that was that gain as much diverse experience in Mm. each role as you can Mm. so say yes to lots of things even Mm. if it's outside your comfort zone because the more diversified your skills the more valuable you become Mm. as an employee Mm. I can't remember who said it but someone said you know think good things happen to the people who show up so you know if there is an opportunity to be on something without over you know tasking yourself um you know put your hand up for all of these diverse opportunities because you get a lot out of it yep um now i think we will finish off with a grab from madeline creedon who's the 2018 alliance 21 fellow for the united states study center and you know she talked about just the general atmosphere of the evening and a lot of the questions but i really liked that um she kept getting asked how do you know when you are successful? Yeah, I think it's really uh, an extraordinary group here. They have lots of excitement and lots of enthusiasm for defense. A lot of the questions were about how do you how do you take the skills, but also how do you move around? How do you not think about a plan uh, carved in stone? How do you be flexible? Um, how can you be open to new opportunities? You know, how did how did we get to where where we all were? Um, and I have to say, one of my favorite questions was was one question that said, "You all are successes. How did you know when you were a success?" And that's actually a really hard question because I don't know that you ever really do. I don't think you ever really get there because if you do, then you've stopped learning, and that's not a good thing. And that's it from us. Thank you so much, uh, Maddie, Fiona, and Danielle. Thank you. Thank Pleasure. You. Thanks. Now you'll hear from Anne and Tom from our cyber team on why protecting our national identity assets is a matter of national security. So Anne, congratulations on your report. Tell me, what's it about? Well, it's about how we are not, or not as well as we could, be protecting the really valuable digital evidence of who we are as a nation, and I'm calling it our our national identity. Uh, And the, the title of the report is called identity of a nation, uh, protecting that that evidence. So it's about all of the information and data that we have that is evidence of who we are, um, from our people right through to our laws and our parliaments, um, the very essence of who we are as a nation. When I read your report and in the process of being in some of the roundtables that you were involved in, Mm. I was really fascinated by the idea that there's now whole swaths of Mm. evidence that aren't ever put to paper Mm. 
Mm, that's right. So nowadays we really are in a di fully digital age. There's very little that we put down on paper uh, right through from uh, you know, some of our parliamentary evidence, although some of it does is put on paper. But we know ourselves, you know, we email, our whole uh, lives are done electronically. So we don't really have that paper evidence that we used to have. And as we go forward, that's going to get even less and less and less. And we're not really thinking about the longevity and the survivability of the really important information that we used to have on paper that is now fully digital or born digital. So do you think that organisations aren't taking seriously the, the concept of bit rot? Have you heard of bit rot where over time something you've stored digitally just degrades because either the technology becomes out of date? Look, I think, I think we do think about it as individuals, but I think as a collective, as a nation, I don't think we are thinking about it as well as we could. And I think that we need to think about it and we need to be able to put in place some mechanisms to ensure that at least we're, we're looking after the really important information. So, you know, in our own personal lives, we really need to work out how we're going to keep that vital digital uh, evidence of who we are. So our photographs of our families, uh, you know, the information about you know, our legal or our banking. Now we can rely on the banks to do that, but we need to be able to ensure that we're saving the really vital stuff. And as a nation, our institutions, our, our government agencies, our, our businesses, our corporations need to be looking at that as well. It seemed like it was more than just bit rot though. Mm. It, in my own household, I have this sort of internal plan for a fire, which is to grab the hard drive with all the photos and, and that's about it. Mm. But you also talk in your report about the possibility of a, a deliberate attack on our heritage. Yeah. So what I'm talking about, the types of, of data and information I'm talking about are things like uh, births, deaths and marriages, our digital land titles. Now, you know, our, our whole land system is going digital and is very digital now, right through to the outcomes of parliament, the outcomes of our law courts, even the way we present ourselves in film and on media, you know, what we look like, what we look like now and how we behave now and the records of that. So I'm talking about that sort of material. And I do think that it's fundamental to who we are as a nation. If we don't have those things, who are we? If we don't have the laws or the evidence of who's been elected to parliament uh, or our parliamentary system, how do we rebuild that or how do we know we exist? And so I think it is very vulnerable and it is a, is a prime target for the next generation of, of cyber attack. So I read an article about how Washington DC keeps its laws, the authoritative copy of its laws on GitHub, mm -hmm. which is a software source code repository. Yeah. Are you, would you recommend that we never do that? Is that just a terrible idea or what's your prescription? Well, I don't think that's a terrible idea. I think it's actually not a bad idea. I think all ideas should be looked at as to how you can ensure uh, the provenance of of information. So at the moment, for example, our laws, a lot of it is just reference material that we have electronically online. And people are starting to more and more rely on the information that is online or the electronic information because it's easily accessible, which is great, but people, you know, sort of rely on it. So if that was manipulated or changed, and over time people were misinterpreting the wrong law, um, or and, and it impacted not just on someone's livelihood, but on their life, or their life savings or even a criminal case. That could cause really major problems. So I think any solution that we could look at to ensure the provenance and the ongoing integrity of that information is worthwhile looking at. 
So it seemed like you were really talking about something that overlaps cybersecurity and the archival space. Mm. Did you talk to different groups in each of those worlds, I guess? Yeah, yeah, no, I did. I, I started off, uh, the, the concept really started off as why isn't this really high value and very important data or digital assets considered part of Australia's critical infrastructure. So I explored that at first. So yeah, I spoke to people right through from our national security area to critical infrastructure to archiving, digital preservation, right through to finance, valuations, how do you value data, uh, and, and a whole heap of areas in between, including our memory and cultural institutions as well. Um, and some of the recommendations I came up with were how we can move forward. And I think uh, what you were speaking about there, Tom, about the bit rot, it's how do we better align um, information security, so how we secure our systems, how we look after data and information, and the preservation, which is about how we ensure the authenticity and integrity of the actual information and data itself. At the moment, they're fairly separate um, in most organisations, and in some organisations, digital preservation doesn't even exist, and they may not even know what it is. So one of my recommendations is alignment. Of, of those two things. And I'm really happy to say that um, the Australian Signals Directorate that uh, develops and, and looks after the um, information security manual for the Commonwealth Government, but it's it, and it's one of those uh, information security um, standards and manuals that's used, are considering including preservation into that, into that manual to guide agencies in the Australian Government, but it also guides others as well. So a lot of people look to that as, as one of the frameworks that uh, for information security. So I'm quite happy that that that's occurred through the process of me talking it through with that national security uh, sector. Yeah, that's a great example of the way that developing and doing research can actually influence people as you go. One of the things I've been aware of is that Estonia actually has what they call digital embassies, which are much more like digital backups in, in foreign countries for, I think it's this kind of data. Would you recommend something like that for Australia? Well, I mean, I, I don't know whether we need to actually have a full digital embassy. I mean, Estonia is is in a specific geographic location uh, near Russia, so and they're a very small uh, country. So there there are realities as to why they've developed and, and established a virtual embassy with all of their really critical government data, so that they can actually, if something happened to the country, they could set up their government or set up who is in authority, and they could set up everything else, who owns what land. I think in Australia we can look at that, but we can still do it in, in different ways, you know, whether it's a joined up, you know, cloud or, you know, there, there are ways of doing it. And I think we need to have, and one of my other recommendations, is more a, a better governance model for these really valuable digital assets of our, of our information. And uh, in my role at the National Archives, I introduced a policy that required all government Australian government agencies to have information governance central to their corporate governance regime and a chief information governance officer as well. Because even within organisations, they don't really, no one's really responsible for all of the data. There's different business areas are responsible for different information. And we really need better governance at an organisational level, and we definitely need better governance at a government level, both at the Australian government and the state government level. What I was really struck by in your report was the vast amount of data that we don't care for very much day to day, but in a hundred years time will be the data that we 
we really value a lot because it'll tell Australia about its history and where we came mm. from. So I think it's a great report. Congratulations. Well done. Okay. Thanks, Tom. Brendan Nicholson recently spoke with Dr Robert Glasser, the former head of the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction on Climate Change. Hello, Robert, and thanks very much for your time. Pleasure. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has just released its latest report. How much trouble are we in? Well, I think we're in quite a bit of trouble, uh, particularly when you consider that the report, which is published by the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is a very conservative report from a very conservative process. It is intergovernmental, which means all of the conclusions are negotiated and agreed, and the science behind it is also tends to be cautious because scientists never say anything is certain, virtually nothing is certain, and they speak in terms of probability and the weight of evidence. So actually the findings are conservative and the picture they paint is deeply disturbing. There are three main conclusions that it reaches. The first is that the threshold, the temperature threshold, at which serious risks, very severe climate risks kick in, is now believed to be significantly lower than scientists thought previously. It means, for example, that instead of 70% of the coral reefs dying at 2.6 degrees of warming, scientists now think that will happen at 1.5 degrees of warming. So big decreases in these thresholds where these dangerous impacts begin happening. The second conclusion is that there is a major difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees and then from 2 to 3 degrees. The difference of that 0.5 degrees between 1.5 and 2 is, in terms of impacts, is several hundred million additional people falling into poverty, a tenfold increase in the number of vulnerable people affected by decreasing crop yields, jumping to a 50-fold uh, increase when you move from 2 degrees to 3 degrees. So huge impacts. And the third is basically the message that received most of the publicity, which was that uh, it is going to be unprecedentedly difficult to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. 2 degrees will be difficult. And if governments stick with the commitments they've already made, we're on track for between 2 and 3 degrees of warming. You've been working closely in this area for a long time. Are you satisfied with the science involved? Well, I think I'm convinced that the lion's share, the vast majority, 97%, it's actually been documented, of scientists who study the climate believe that climate change is real. And if anything, what we've seen over the decades is that the uncertainty about this problem has diminished over time. For example, this IPCC report I just mentioned. So scientists are absolutely convinced of this problem and they are deeply worried that politicians have not acted more rapidly to reduce greenhouse gases because this will have huge impacts on society. Now, in a sophisticated country like Australia, we still have politicians arguing that climate science is, is not accurate and, and that climate change is not true, that we've had cyclical changes in temperatures and rainfall going back centuries. What's your view on that? Well, I think the science is very clear on this as well. While it is true that the world has cooled and warmed over huge timescales, what we're seeing now is an 
a, a warming that is unprecedented in, in the period of all of human civilization, the speed at which the planet is warming as a result of greenhouse gas emissions from human activity is unprecedented. So people who deny that reality are either simply denying science or they must have other political reasons for not wanting to make the transition. Of course, there are winners and losers when you make a transition, say, from fossil fuels to renewables. But the science is really, although the detail of a lot of the science is still being discussed and analyzed and worked on, the general point about very dangerous climate change with very severe human impacts kicking in at one and a half or two degrees is really well established now. There's a strong, perhaps, but small, very vocal political element that argues that it's much more important to keep people's power bills down than actually to deal with the issues of climate change. What's your view of that? Do you think the population is so worried about extra money needing to be paid on power bills that it's willing to risk its children's future? I think that's a bit of a furphy because I think the analysis I've seen from ANU and from others, some energy policy experts, suggests that if you're really serious about reducing costs of electricity, then renewables are going to be a huge uh, contribution to that effort. And I think to focus on carbon, coal production, uh, and electrical generation from coal at a time when it is rapidly becoming, it is losing its cost effectiveness. Certainly new coal power plants are no longer competitive with renewables, but even now extending the life of existing coal plants is not uh, competitive, so, or increasingly uncompetitive with, uh, with renewables. So I think you can achieve both a reduction in the cost of electricity and reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. They're not a, it's not a zero-sum game. Another argument that comes up constantly is that if the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing and the waves aren't steep, then we can't rely on renewables. You know, are we reaching a point where we can rely on renewables for baseload power? I think uh, especially for baseload power, for peak power, because uh, that tends to be when the sun is shining. Um, and in fact, what we've seen is that the areas that are using renewables, you see the peak power time changing to later in the day. So I think there are a variety of ways of solving that problem. First of all, there's battery technology. South Australia has gone that route with the major battery storage plant they put in place. There are other options that are less, have fewer greenhouse gas implications like uh, uh, natural gas. So I think the Reliability of renewables is increasing, the price is coming down, the storage technology is taking off. And Australia should get behind that with policies that promote this transition that's so critical to our future. Australia is a fairly advanced country with a relatively wealthy population. If we're struggling with this, is there any hope for third world countries to actually bring down their emissions and, and, and still keep their populations thriving? Well, I think they, they do have major challenges in meeting energy needs in less developed countries. But ironically, some of the largest investments in renewable technologies is actually happening in countries like India and China. And it they create opportunities to leapfrog some of the older technologies we've used in, in wealthy countries. So I think 
Certainly, countries like India and China, certainly if you focus on rural electrification, renewables are already a very extremely competitive. Um, I think this, we'll see more of this as we move forward. And in fact, China is really leading the world now on renewable energy technology, seeing a huge market opportunity uh, in, in helping deploy these technologies. Well, given the extent of our wide brown land, have we lost an opportunity that we could have actually taken as leaders in this area in Australia? I think we have enormous innovation and technical capacity here, and there have been periods in the development of renewables where Australia was leading the world. We have some leading technologies, and we can rapidly become a world leader, creating a huge business opportunity for Australian in marketing Australian technologies to other countries, to developing countries, to developed countries. There seems to have been little serious effort from eloquent people in leadership positions to actually explain, apart from the scientists, I mean on the political side of things, to actually explain the consequences of not doing anything about climate change. Would you be able to run us through some ideas of the likely impacts from water shortages? I think a lot of people think, well, we're going to get sea level rise and that's the end of it. Presumably there's much more serious issues involved, like reduction in crop production, possibly mass starvation, triggering mass people movements. Sure. So we are, Australia is very exposed to the hazards climate change is amplifying. Just to give you an example, 20% of Australia's GDP is based in parts of the country that are exposed to tropical cyclone risk and cyclones could increase in frequency or in severity, if not frequency, as a result of a warming climate. We have over 10%, 11% of GDP is based in places that are exposed to bushfire risk. And this is certainly as the climate warms, if we have hotter days and longer droughts, the prospect of bushfires increasing uh, goes up and certainly projected by climate scientists. What we're seeing in Queensland now is a real taste of things to come. I was uh, up at the Whit Sundays working with some colleagues there who were commenting that they were, who were rebuilding after Cyclone Debbie, really an enormously intense storm that dropped almost unprecedented levels of rain and precipitation. They said they were rebuilding from a flood in a drought. So they've had a flood and now they're trying to recover from the flood, but there's a drought and now bushfires as well. They can't even obtain the water to mix with the gravel to rebuild the roads. And what we are likely to see, what we're already seeing, is an increase in the frequency and severity of these hazards, striking, they can strike simultaneously or in much closer uh, succession, and on scales and in patterns that we haven't seen before. The bushfire season, one would project, will become an annual, it won't be a season, it will be an annual event now, annual occurrences. You mean all year? All year. Sorry, uh, that's right. All year events, we'll see storms striking in places that haven't struck before. They haven't struck before. For example, there's some science in Australia that suggests that the path of extreme cyclone risk is now moving south as a result of climate change, exposing the Gold Coast to, to severe cyclone threat. Many of the towers in, in that area um, have not been built to withstand extreme cyclone risk. So. These are the sorts of things. We'll have parts of the country that were marginally viable for agriculture that will be in chronic crisis. The government will have to consider land 
banks and, and actually relocating people out of zones of hazard, whether it's bushfire hazard or sea level rise and storm risk um, and others. So it's a different world. It's a world we have not experienced in, in all of Australia's uh, at least time of, since settlement. And you believe that clearly that we're, we are already seeing the consequences of climate change? that we're seeing the number of hot days increases. You saw bomb, I guess it was a year or two ago during the angry summer, adding a new color mm. to the uh, to the weather chart. We're seeing uh, more intense rainfall, more frequent rainfall. Sea level's been rising at a rap more rapid rate since the mid-1990s. We're seeing bushfires breaking out earlier than ever before. So yes, we're beginning to see this, but the, the really important point about that IPCC report, which you asked me at mm. the outset of this mm. podcast, is that the change in impacts is not going to happen linearly. It's going to happen exponentially. The difference between 1.5 and 2 is an exponential difference. And so if we're assuming, based on what we've seen so far, that we can manage this transition, we are fooling ourselves. The increase will be exponential in the impacts, and we need to begin planning for that now as a matter of urgency. Robert, sounds very bleak, but thank you very much. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back in two weeks for our last episode of 2018. 